Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And as usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan. And good evening to those who might be listening to the program this evening. Yes, we really appreciate you taking time out of your Tuesday evening routine. We know that you have a busy life and taking the time to join us here on That's Truth. And if you have listened before, you know that when I say join us, I mean it literally, that we look forward to your interaction. No matter how you are joining us tonight, whether it's on AM, FM, online, or on Facebook Live, we are honored to have you with us. And Pastor, we have a lot of questions that have already come in since last week's episode. I'm going to start out with a question, a Facebook question from Tobago. Thank you to the individual who sent this in. It says, Good evening, Pastor. Could the word fornication, as used in Matthew 5.32, have been deliberately and specifically used by Jesus, who knows what he is saying and makes no mistakes, to refer only to pre-marriage conduct on the part of the spouse, which was kept from the other spouse and only revealed after marriage. I ask this in light of the fact that Jesus did not say fornication and adultery, although he clearly used the specific term adultery to define the result that occurs when a person who is married remarries. I also ask in light of Jewish culture from Deuteronomy twenty two thirteen to 21, where a husband raised an issue as to premarital conduct, or in parentheses, fornication of the wife. And the question goes on along these lines. But, Pastor, what are your yeah. thoughts? Well, I think it's a legitimate interpretation if a person wants to interpret that way. I, I knew that interpretation before I made the comments about um, um, infidelity and um, abandonment being the basis for divorce. But let me say a few words why I differ a little bit on this matter. First of all, the word that is used there by our Lord in Matthew 19, 9 is the word pornia. And it comes from the Greek word pornio, uh, which has to do with infidelity that includes adultery, incest. It's a general term for immorality. So it doesn't only mean fornication. It can also mean uh, adultery, incest, uh, bestiality, and other aberrant forms, including homosexuality, by the way. So it's a general Greek term that has to do with the word immorality. Um, So I I don't dispute that that's a possible uh, interpretation. 
But my question would be this. Which would be worse uh, or more serious? A person committing an act of infidelity before marriage or infidelity in marriage? As far as I'm concerned, it is more serious after marriage because you've already made vows and commitments uh, to a long-lasting relationship that excludes all others. So I, I cannot fathom that because a person committed um, um, an infidelity before uh, marriage, maybe didn't tell the partner. Uh, most people uh, hardly ever discuss that part of their life before they become married. It's generally assumed, if I might say this, uh, especially within the Caribbean context, that context when somebody comes to the altar, really in truth and fact, there are very few people that are have not been touched. Uh, my own experience from counseling indicates to me that by the time a woman comes to the altar, she's been through about three to five men, or they don't have to talk with the men, it's far in excess of that. But that's within the Caribbean context. Uh, it's a very serious problem. Immorality is, is so rampant uh, in our society, and it's, a, it's, an, it's an acceptable practice today, it seems to me. So I cannot fathom why it would be um, um, grounds for um, divorce if a person uh, has been unfaithful, uh, has been committed as fornication before marriage, and the person finds it out, therefore they, they go to bed, they consummate the marriage uh, with the sexual act, and then the person turns around and says, well, I want to divorce you because you were not a virgin before uh, I married you. To my mind, uh, I think that's very difficult for us to conceive of that. On the other hand, when a person has already made vows and commitment to, to marriage for a long a life that is uh, one of fidelity to each other for um, until death do their part, and then for there to be infidelity after that, to my mind, that's far more serious. So I, um, I differ on that basis uh, uh, as well. The other thing is that what is marriage? Marriage is about oneness. It's about two people coming together and making a covenant and vows before God to be true to each other, to be faithful to each other, and to be um, exclusively in love with each other and only sharing that private part of their lives with the individual. Um, when that is violated, several things happen. Number one, trust is destroyed. I can't emphasize how important trust is within marriage. Once that goes, everything falters. So you've got, you got to understand, uh, why would it be uh, before uh, the person was married to me, um, you know, I understand I got trust there, but what if the person um, had committed some fornication before, whatever it is? That's not as important to me that after we have made commitment and vows um, that I put trust in her that she's going to be faithful or he's going to be faithful uh, to, to the, the, the contract or to the covenant. The other thing is that, you know, when people involved in these kind of activities um, outside of marriage, um, you endanger the health and the life of the spouse. I cannot emphasize to the public that you've got over 25 different STDs out there. Some of them are lethal. Um, we talk about AIDS, but there's also other other problems you have, STDs, that are just as serious, that can lead to cancer, that can lead to genital warts, that can lead to uh, herpes, which is something that cannot be cured. Um, there's so many of these things out there that it, I can't imagine why people would continue to live this kind of a reckless lifestyle. 
and jeopardize their health or jeopardize the, 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 the health of the one that they love. And then the other thing is, you know, it, it would, if, if that were true, it would almost foster a pattern of escalating infidelity. If a man can believe that he can just continue to commit adultery again and again and again and his wife has no recourse, that almost emboldens him. As a matter of fact, I was counseling a couple uh, sometime last year and that's one of the things that the husband was holding over the head of the wife. She was a Christian. He was not a Christian, but he's saying to her, you can't leave me, even though she, he'd been committed adultery again and again and again and again and mm-hmm. again and again. His idea was that the Bible said, you can't, you, can't, uh, you can't divorce me. So she has to stay in that misery. I had to say to her, madam, that's a misinterpretation of Scripture, and he's just using it as a wedge, I mean, as a, as a, um, a club over your head to keep you in submission. Uh, and then, of course, the discards that are committed when these things happen. A woman, when a man has been unfaithful to her, uh, it really demeans her welfare and demeans her her, her self of self worth, and um, she wonders often why what does the other person have she doesn't have. It, it scars her emotionally uh, and very deeply psychologically, and very, it takes many years before those scars can be removed. So I I don't think the innocent should suffer for the guilty. I don't think that is just. And I think that if there's no recourse, um, I think it emboldens people to repeatedly commit sin. And I think that marriage was designed to reflect Christ in the church. And there are two things that that should reflect, faithfulness and mutual love between the two persons. So I, uh, I understand the interpretation. I knew the interpretation before. But the word that is used there is so general that it involves more than just fornication, other acts as well that could um, disqualify uh, a marriage and and allow for biblical divorce. And once you have biblical divorce, it involves the right to to remarry. Just a couple of uh, scenarios or follow-up questions in relation to that. Uh, To take the interpretation that it meant all sexually immoral acts, including include adultery, would, I think, lead to many other problems. For example, who is to say who is the wrong party in an incident where both the husband and the wife claim the other was wrong and the other has been unfaithful, and how is a third party to be sure that the person that he or she is marrying has the correct version of what has transpired? That's a that's a tricky question. Good question, but let me just say this. When you have a situation between uh, people who offend each other, there's a biblical way of how you deal with that, Matthew 18. I have a situation with my husband and my wife, a husband and wife, where they've got a problem. Um, they can either seek out the help of a pastor, and uh, you could pretty much hear the situation and, and make a judgment on these matters. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> there are some people who are very, very upright and honest that will tell you, listen, I was the wrong per- person. I, I, I'm responsible for this. I've had those situations as well. Um, there might be a, a, a problem where sometimes the, the, there's some vagueness in regards to that, that matter. But again, this is where the attempt is always made to heal the relationship. Divorce is not the first um, response to any infidelity. It's always the possibility of forgiving <coughs> and uh, trying to rebuild the relationship. But what happens with sometimes is that this goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on. And every time that happens, the the uh, the uh, the... the faithful partner is always her life is in jeopardy when a man goes out or a woman goes on sleep with another man every single disease he has every single woman he's ever slept with every disease she has he brings home uh, I, I cannot think that it could be just and right and righteous uh, for God to know that and the innocent party has no recourse that just doesn't 
um, jive with my understanding of the justice and the holiness of God. And I think that's why there's an exception to this. Now, this, is, this does not encourage uh, divorce, by the way. I hope you people understand that. Um, the, 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 what our Lord was dealing in Matthew chapter 19 has to do with the Jews for now because Moses had given them permission uh, for the heart of the heart to commit uh, to have a divorce they were now using divorce to get over every situation if a woman burned the cake for example that was grounds for her for him to divorce her this is what our Lord is dealing with this nonchalant attitude that I can just get rid of my wife any time I want to get rid of her because there's something I just don't like about her maybe she doesn't comb her hair right maybe she's had the right B.O. you know all those kind of things silly things they were using as an excuse for divorce, and our Lord had to put strictures and and, and uh, uh, parameters, and the only exception He allowed is this matter of immorality. And I think it is fair and just that that should be the exception. And of course, Paul will add one in Matthew in uh, Corinthians chapter seven, which he said, "Our Lord never dealt with this in chapter seven of First Corinthians because He never talked about abandonment." But Paul talks about if they want to go, let them go. The sister is not bound. It's the same word that is used in connection that a, hus- a wife is bound to her husband so long as he lives, and that would allow a, as well for um, a divorce. And one final thought from this individual in Tobago, also a person could use the fact that her husband confesses that he has the habit of lusting after another woman in his heart to claim that she has the biblical grounds for divorce. For looking after a woman to lust at her is adultery in his heart. What are your thoughts? There's no biblical grounds for that. Uh, um, Our Lord is talking about the actual act itself. Um, uh, Guilt by... Uh, You can't read a person's mind. uh, All I would say to men... um, you know, when you're driving, uh, a wife could normally pick up, you know, if you can pick up, you're looking through the mirror because you see some woman in a scanty skirt or something like that. You need to be very, very careful in that regard. But that's not what he's talking about in that passage of Scripture. That's abuse of misuse of the passage. What he's safeguarding is that people understand what marriage is about. It's a permanent relationship that's exclusive and that there's oneness between the two partners when it comes to the sexual act. A third party destroys that oneness and therefore destroys the marriage. That's what he's getting at. He's, he's trying to maintain a high standard of what he expects and that we must not use frivolous excuses for getting out of a marriage. But he has permitted this because we're living in a sinful world. We're not perfect. So there's an exception there and allows for that. And I, I, I feel that is just, honestly, I think that that is the, uh, a good, solid, reasonable, uh, righteous basis for divorce because we've got to get back to what is marriage. Marriage is supposed to be permanent between two persons and there's supposed to be a oneness and that one is between the man and his wife. No third party that comes in there, that oneness is completely destroyed. I think this is what our Lord is dealing with. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive program, and we look forward to your interaction. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. The phone line is available and waiting for you. Again, that number is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, we had someone uh, just sending a question from All Saints. Uh, Good night, Pastor Murphy. Can you please explain Job chapter 12 and verse number 10? And Job 12.10 says, 
in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breadth of all mankind. Can you please explain Job 12.10? And I'm going to pull up the context yeah, there. Give me the context. Yeah, let me pull up the Bible program. Thank you to those who have already interacted with us tonight, or maybe you sent in a question earlier in the week. We really appreciate it. Okay, so I'm going to start in uh, Job chapter 12, verse 7. But ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. O speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Doth not the ear try words, and the mouth taste his meat? With the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days understanding. So again, the verse in question is, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Well, I think that is so basic, and not to show why it's a problem. Clearly, it's referring to God, uh, who he he has a soul of every person in his hand, and he has life in hand, which is the the expression of breath. So he gives uh, human life and the human soul, is in God's hand. Uh, I don't know why that should be a problem. I think that's a straightforward interpretation. Uh, and this is something the Bible teaches all over, that the soul comes from God and that life comes from God. He gives the breath of life. So um, it's just indicating quite there that um, the animals and all these things could teach you that in actual fact, God is the one who is sovereign and he controls the human soul and he also controls the human life. So I don't know why there's a, a problem there. So problem. if the soul comes from God, and but then man's the destiny of man's soul is determined based on his choices and what he does with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is that true? Yeah, but that that is true. But uh, the, the point that's being made there really is true that um, man's soul comes from God and man's breath comes from God. That's the point there. But you're right about that. Uh, even though God has given to man and, and soul is in God's hand, we have to make a decision. Uh, God is We are moral creatures that God has given us a choice to make. And you can either choose to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or you can choose to reject him. But um, th- th- So there's no such thing as universalism. There's no such thing as uh, everybody going to be saved. It all depends on the decision you make in relation to Christ. So uh, even though he has your soul and he has your life in his hand, uh, he has also given us a choice to make uh, in, re- in respect to our eternal destiny. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. You can also join us on Facebook Live, and you can comment your questions. Thank you no matter how you are joining us for taking time out of your Tuesday evening. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.50. Pastor, I have another uh, message that came in throughout the week. It says, Good night, Pastor. Please explain the following. What is meant by a land flowing with milk and honey? Well, uh, I think we're all familiar with that expression. The first time it's found is in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 8, where um, God appeared and God promised that um, he would give to Israel, uh, take them into the land of of, uh, milk and honey. If you want to look at that, Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And I came down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto all good land and a large 
unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and other difficult so names that, to that, say. Yeah, that, that clearly indicates that the land of, of milk and honey is going to be Canaan. Right, it's very clear there that I'm going to take you to the land and, and tell you what that land is, land of Canaan. That's a, a phrase that's expressed uh, again and again. You don't have to turn to these passages, but it's also found in Leviticus 20:28, 20, Numbers 13:27, Deuteronomy 6:3, Joshua 5:6, Jeremiah 11:5, uh, Ezekiel 20 verse 6. Um, an indication of what that means is uh, given an idea. If you look at Numbers, when the spies were being sent into reconnaissance the land there uh, Numbers chapter 13 verse 20 um, certain directives are given to them as to what to look for and what the land is whether it be fat or lean whether there be a wood therein or not and be ye of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. Okay, but you see the indication there? He's totally going to the land of milk and honey, and uh, now he's going to reconnaissance the 12 spies. Uh, directors are given, look look and see if they've got the land is fat or lean. This means, does it have abundance or does it have scarcity? scarcity? Um, does it have woods, uh, wood? Does it have uh, fruit, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, we also, if you look at chapter, same chapter, look, we read verse 23 and verse 27. I will get back to that, Pastor. We have a caller that just called in. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. We're listening. Yes, sir. This is the low IC, but the low IC from Matthews. Yes, sir. I am the one who asked that question just now. Is every living thing has a soul? Well, it, it, the Bible also, the same word as used for soul, by the way, is the same word as all, all the, even the animals in the book of Genesis. That's what the, the term, same term is used there for, for animals. The difference between, between us and animals is that we have a spirit, not just a soul. Hello? Hello. Yeah, the difference between them is that they have a soul and we also have a, but we have a spirit. But remember, the soul represents the intellect, the emotions, and it re- uh, represents. Um, Go with it. Mm-hmm. You want it back? No. Yeah. Yes, Pastor Yeah, I'm just saying that the soul normally represents your emotions and represents your ability to think and the ability to make choices. No, that's, that's not the part I'm looking at. Uh-huh. It's every living thing. Uh-huh. If somebody can say to me, well, in human being, God emphasized more on the soul of human being yeah. than other creatures. But he said, all living thing. Uh-huh. That's what I want to find out about. It is all living thing has a soul. But what I'm saying to you is that if you check the, the, the book of Genesis as well, uh, you'll find that the same word that is used for soul for man is also applied to the, the, to the animals. So the, the indication there is that in some sense, uh, they have um, they have a, a soul in the sense that they are in, intelligent, they have feelings, they have emotions. But what they don't have is a spirit. That's the difference oh. between the human being and 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 uh, and, um, and the animal. We have a spirit. They don't have a spirit. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, sir. Thank you very much for the follow-up call in relation to that question. Keep listening and encouraging others to listen to That's Truth. Uh, Pastor, you were uh, asking... Oh, yeah. I was asking to look at um, Numbers 13, um, 23, and 27. 
Numbers chapter 13, 23 and verse 27. 23 to 27? No, we, we 23 and 27. Okay. Uh, verse 23 says, And they came onto the brook of Eshkol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff, and they brought the of the pomegranates and the figs. And then verse 27 says, And they told him, and said, We came unto the land whither thou seest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. The point there is that's a, a Hebrew idiomatic expression that talks about agricultural abundance. So when our Lord said it's going to be a land of milk and honey, it's just indicated to the Jews that being an agri- uh, agricultural society and being an agrarian world, uh, he's indicated that when the land he was taking them into would have abundant agricultural crops, and uh, he indicated that his favor and his blessing would be upon the land so that they would have abundance. So that is, and, and, and think about that milk, uh, of course, would mean that you have a lot of cows where you would have good grass, you had good, uh, good agriculture. And, um, of course, the honey would mean that you have um, different trees where you can have the, the honey that's made from. So it's just an idiomatic expression that speaks of a agricultural abundance and the blessings of God upon the Jews. And that's what the land of Canaan was. Um, it was a land where God would uh, bless Israel, and as long as they remained obedient to him and followed him, he would give them the former rain and the latter rain, and they would have abundance. The moment Israel started to sin, they experienced drought, etc., etc., because God is a moral God, and violating his, his moral laws brought upon Israel uh, chastisement in the form of um, sometimes you had drought, uh, sometimes you had locusts, uh, but normally he intended that that be a, a land of blessing, but blessing was contingent on the obedience to him. The next question from this listener is, is a eunuch an unmarried saved person or married but can't get children? Well, the, the word that is used there uh, in connection with eunuch, it literally means bedkeeper or chamberlain. And really, it's uh, in Oriental life, um, the eunuch was a person uh, who was either castrated or he had some um, congenital um, um, deformity that he could not uh, function uh, sexually. So what monarchs would do when they had their harems uh, they would have to safeguard their females, and they would make a man like that uh, in charge of the harem. You can see why he would do that. He, he can't function sexually, therefore he's not going to interfere with, with his harem. So it, it really is a, a common term that was employed, especially in Oriental courts, to, for people who uh, could not function sexually, whether uh, deliberately done by men or some kind of congenital deformity. Under the law of Moses, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, a person who was a eunuch, that is, he was congenitally deformed, he could not be part of the congregation because it required perfection. Um, In Matthew 19, uh, our Lord classifies three types of eunuchs. And uh, he says, one of them, he says that they were born eunuchs. And that means that they were naturally incapacitated sexually. Uh, There's a congenital deformity where they have an undeveloped sexual capacity. The other one, he said, made eunuchs by men. Those are people who are mutilated, actually castrated, uh, to be put as male guards 
uh, in the harem. And then he said, others make themselves eunuch. Uh, this has to do with a person who voluntarily uh, live a life of celibacy. Um, unlike the others, which has to do with something that is physical, this has a non-physical situation. So a person voluntarily desires to live a celibate life so that he might serve God and live for God. Paul had this gift. You read in Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 and 34, he had this gift where he could remain celibate. So uh, this to answer the question there, then, it, it depends on which kind of eunuch you're talking about because the three that our Lord described. Uh, one that had made himself a eunuch doesn't mean that he cut off his genitals. It simply means that he has voluntarily decided not to engage in sexual activity. He remains celibate. He remains unmarried. That, not, that requires a gift from God. Okay, that is not something that a person can naturally impose upon himself. I think the Catholic Church is suffering uh, from trying to impose on men who doesn't have the gift that they remain celibate because they're priests. That's why you got so much buggery. That's why you got so much things happening in the Catholic Church and paying out so many billions of dollars because a lot of this is now being exposed that these men that were not given the, had the gift of celibacy, they've actually taken advantage of people within the congregation. But um, uh, as it used there, it depends on which one you're ta- referring to. But there is a voluntary eunuch in the sense that he forgoes the legitimate right to be married and to express his sexuality. But he uh, has the gift where he doesn't need to do that. Therefore, he decides to serve God and not be married and, and live out for the Lord. There are some people who can do that. Um, if you don't have the gift, don't try to do it because you only end up in trouble and you're going to mess up a lot of people's lives. But there are people uh, who make that kind of a commitment. Pastor, what is meant by the phrase, be fruitful and multiply in the book of Genesis? I think that is, again, a very straightforward um, uh, passage. I, uh, it really means to cr- procreate and have children and to um, increase. Remember in the case of uh, Adam, uh, he has a whole world to himself, Jesse and his wife, and he was told to be fruitful and multiply. That means to to procreate, to have children and multiply and fill the earth. When, when after the Lord had destroyed the, the earth by the flood in, in Genesis chapter 9, he told Noah and his sons the same thing, be fruitful and multiply. That is to populate the earth, to have kids. So I think it's a mandate uh, uh, to have children and um, and to, to populate the earth. I I have said this before, and I probably people might be offended if I say this, but I wouldn't marry somebody who would come to me and say, Pastor, you want to get married, I don't have any children. Never marry a person like that. Another person can marry them, but please, I wouldn't marry a person like that because I think one of the purposes of marriage is children. It's companionship. There's the wife to compliment the, the husband. Um, there is uh, a closeness between the two people, but you can't escape the fact that marriage was designed for children. So if a person doesn't want to have children, um, I would simply advise them not to come to me to ask me about marriage. Uh, I would not consent to the marriage if they say that. Now, that's if they could have children, okay? That's something different. But I do feel that we should not, even if the situation uh, is as bad as it is, there's always a, a, a blessing. And children are a gift from God. Uh, when you have a child, it's a gift from God. I, I forgot the statistics of how many, sp- um, the possibility of the, the human sperm actually meeting the ova. Uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal number that when you hear the, the statistics of the probability of it actually happening, you realize that there's a miracle that takes place. And I think we ought to not um, 
see children as a burden. I think we need to see children as a blessing. That's how God intended it. A lot of it helps us salvage the home and keep the home together as well. So I think it's a biblical uh, um, uh, purpose of marriage. Um, but that's what it means, and that has to be fruitful and multiplying. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, we are also on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can join us that way. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is three and a half minutes after 8 8 p.m. We still have about just shy of an hour left in the program, so encourage others to tune into That's Truth and to send in their questions. Pastor, a question here. The 144,000 who will evangelize the whole world, where is considered the whole world and that they evangelize? Well, I think you've got to understand the the language of the Scripture. Um, The whole world simply means uh, every area of the world, basically. Um, When the Bible says go and uh, preach the gospel to every creature and to to the whole world, it means that every part of the world you go and preach the gospel. So the 144,000 are those who are selected Jews, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe in the book of Revelation. And they um, performed the, I can't hear. They performed the job that the church was designed to perform, but after the church is raptured, Israel is grafted back into God's program and they become the evangelists who carry the gospel to the whole world. And in Revelation it said that they will carry the gospel of the kingdom because after the, after the uh, church is raptured, the next thing is the the next thing is the um, the tribulation, and then you have the millennial kingdom. So they'll be they'll be preaching that the kingdom is coming. Remember how Christ came on the scene and John the Baptist repent the kingdom of God is at hand because the king had come. That's the essence of it. So they'll be proclaiming the fact that the king is coming, the kingdom of God is is going to be uh, in order. Uh, but their job is to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth just like our, our task is to do that. But the church has failed miserably. And I think during the tribulation period, the Lord is going to um, raise up these evangelists to carry the gospel to the end of the earth. Now, we're supposed to be evangelizing the world now with the good news of the gospel. Pastor, what is the gospel? There's so much confusion out there about religion. Is the gospel religion? And if not, what is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us in Corinthians chapter 15 about the gospel. The gospel is the message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God has provided a substitute to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven and pardoned and redeemed. And uh, all God expects of us is to do two things, repent of our sins, and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel in the essence. It's it's very simple, and that's why people trip over the gospel again and again. And um, there are people who add to the gospel, but the simplicity of the matter is that it's a matter of faith and trust in Jesus Christ and by faith and trust alone. But there is the element of repentance. So repentance of your sins and faith towards God is the gist and the essence of the gospel. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Pastor, when the flood during Noah's time destroyed the whole earth where did the considered the whole world is it like America and the Caribbean or is it the whole world 
Well, look, if you read the book of Genesis, and I would suggest to you, by the way, uh, to get a full understanding of the extent of the flood, there's a book by Leon Morrison uh, called uh, The Genesis Flood. Uh, I would suggest that you, 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 you get that online. It's a fairly large volume, but he is a, a, a scientist uh, with a PhD and who knows a lot about mechanics and a lot about water pressure and, and so on. But he, he argues very strongly. Uh, he defends the worldwide flood that it covered the entire world. And his arguments are very, very solid. They've never been refuted. But again, if you read the book of Genesis, uh, it tells you that every single mountain was covered. Uh, it tells you that only eight people were saved to restart the entire world. So I don't see how you can dispute that, that um, that the Genesis flood was a universal flood that covered the entire world. The other thing, if you look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, there's a comparison there. And uh, could you just read that, uh, please, especially verse number 6. Starting in verse number 3, it says, Second Peter. Second oh, Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that the word of God of the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And verse 6 says, Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter's drawing a contrast. He's saying the same way the world was destroyed by a flood, the entire world was destroyed by a flood. He's saying that it's never going to happen again by a flood because the Lord made a vow with a rainbow that he would show mercy and there'll never be a flood. But he says that it's coming the day when the entire world again is going to be destroyed but by fire and every the, the elements will, will burn with a fervent, fervent heat. So Peter is drawing a comparison here between what took place in ancient times and what will take place in the future that this world is destined to be conflagrated, completely destroyed, uh, if you read the passage uh, further. So uh, Peter had no doubt in his mind that there was a worldwide flood and the whole world perished. That's Peter's expression. And he said that they're willingly ignorant of it. And the reason why they're willingly ignorant of it because the facts indicate that when you look at the geological uh, um, forms that are there, for example, it explains like things like the Great Canyon, how in the world, you know, they said that, that, that the river that's in the canyon eat away gradually, 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 etc. But uh, if you've ever seen pictures of that, you, you know that that is just totally incredible uh, that for that to happen. The other thing, they found a lot of um, mass graves of dinosaurs in different locations all over the world, basically, indicating that this is not just a local flood. Uh, places in Africa, even in Europe, uh, would indicate that 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 would be the case. The other thing is that um, those who know naval architecture and who also are familiar with boats, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, one of the amazing things that they they point out is that the form in which it is described in the Bible, forty-five feet uh, high, 
75 feet wide and 450 feet long with three different stories. Those who study naval architecture indicate that this is the most stable kind of craft for the water. As a matter of fact, what I discovered was even astounding. Uh, they do have done modern stability tests in um, um, the term that you use, where you could actually, um, the word is not coming uh, to me at this point in time, but they've done experiments with it, with waves, and concocted a, made a model of Noah's uh, Ark, etc., etc., a, a, a small model, but use, using different um, different powers and different forces. They have come to the conclusion that the boat that Noah built uh, could withstand um, um, waves as high as 200 feet. I'm not joking. And it could tilt 90 degrees and still return back to its form. It says ideal. As a matter of fact, the other thing, it said that the the model of um, the arc is the same model that is used for these great ocean liners. The same proportion that you find in the arc, that same proportion is now used in, 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 in modern boat building. Uh, so it's an incredible um, um uh, information that is, is is provided when you take these things into modern um, modern use. Um, the other thing is, every single civilization have some story of the flood. For example, the Sumerians have a, a story of the flood. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Hindus, the Chinese, the Mexicans, even the Hawaiians, all of them have the same story that there was this flood that destroyed the entire world. But it's clear that there was some. Uh, um, core truth that was there that became exaggerated and led into mythology and plagiarism in the ancient world. And when you compare the Genesis flood and the information that's given, uh, it is very, very clear that these others are just distortions. For example, the Babylonian flood epic uh, says that their boat was a crucible. Uh, those that know uh, about boat building say that it, c- it can even hold one person in a flood like that. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that the uh, they claim that the rain fell for seven days. Impossible. Uh, it, we're told it rained for over 150 days in, in Noah's time. So when you look at what the pagans are saying vis-a-vis what the Bible says, the the biblical information is more in harmony with the scientific facts than these, but clearly there's some basic truth that was distorted by them. The other thing is, they said uh, in the uh, the one of the these theories said that the water subsided after one day. <laughs> That's the biggest joke. Uh, that that uh, so that just shows you that there's some truth there, but when they were writing it, clearly they didn't understand the, the laws about these matters. And then the other thing about it is that all of these um, theories and all of these stories about the Great Flood, that uh, thing, they always turn the hero, uh, who is Noah, and he is given immortality and he's exalted. The Bible doesn't do that. Immediately after the Flood, they show you Noah's sin. He commits sin by taking things. See the difference? Yeah. See? The Bible is about truth. It's about reality. And the facts that the Scripture states are established scientific facts and in harmony with what these scientists know about uh, those situations. One other uh, proof of the flood, and I know we have a number of programs. If you're interested in listening uh, at other times, the program by Ken Ham, Answers with Ken Ham, uh, Answers in Genesis, 
but there's been fossils of sea creatures found on the top of some of the highest yeah. mountains, and there's no other way to explain that. Yeah. Well, but even in Antigua, for example, like where I was living in, um, I was living in Clark's Hill. Clark's Hill. I have fossilized uh, on the land a lot of fossilized um, trees. Hmm. I mean, solid as rock. Okay, I think when we had the guy from the creation research here, what was his name, Morrison? John Morrison. John Morrison. Uh, and uh, he and, and uh, talking with him, uh, he explained that uh, that is probably as a result of the the, the earth flooding as well. So the, the biblical evidence is is overwhelming, and and that that book, the Genesis flood, is a classic. It's a standard work, but he uses all different types of scientific data. Uh, to show that there was a, a global flood and a worldwide flood. And that's my belief. I believe the Bible teaches that. Peter agrees with it. And I, I, I find it difficult that um, uh, people who claim to be Christians uh, would deny that there was such a, a worldwide flood. But the Bible clearly indicates that it was, and it's our, uh, our faith to believe that and to trust that. Pastor, here's a question that came in this last week. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Can you please answer the following it is said that if a woman have sex with a man and he goes with other partners for sex, all those he went with, with spirits and DNA, pass on to you. Can it pass on to your child if you are pregnant? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think I've never heard uh, um, a question like that before. Uh, I suspect that the person has been informed, and I'm not willing to get the information from, but. Um, the, the idea of somebody sleeping with somebody and, and getting their spirit, uh, unless the person is somehow demonized, um, that would happen. But normal circumstances in, in, uh, between sexual act between two people, there's no, there's no transfer of spirit from the individual to the other person. And then the idea of the DNA, I mean, you can't just pick up a person's DNA and then pass on to your children that way. Uh, so I think there's no scientific evidence for that. And I, I don't. I think that uh, the person is probably, I don't know who would have informed them that way, but I know that there's a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word voodoo theology, basically, but they're still within the Caribbean as a result of a lot of what has come uh, happened um, especially African a animism where the spirit is in everything I think that may be the remnants of that belief that is now carried over within the Caribbean context but there's no biblical basis for that uh, another question from the same listener Pastor who is the new Jerusalem coming down in the book of Revelation chapter 21 well the new Jerusalem um, is a city of God that is going to come down and be suspended above planet Earth, the new planet, new, new Earth, and uh, this is what is meant by the the heaven that the believers are looking for. Um, we could trace it in the Bible, by the way. If you look at Hebrews eleven ten, Nathan, and read that, please. It talks about Abraham looking for a city. Hebrews 11.10 says, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God, that's what he was looking for, this, this heavenly city that's going to come down. If you look at Hebrews 11.16 as well, it indicates that the others as well uh, who had faith in God were expecting uh, this heavenly city. Can you read it? But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly 
and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Oh, referring to the heroes of faith, but notice that they're looking for heavenly city. This is not something that's earthly they were looking for. They're looking for this, this uh, city that God will. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24, there's a further description of this. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in the heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So we talk this heavenly Jerusalem, uh, the same as referred to in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 3.20, but in Galatians 3.12, if you look there again, you'll find that it's called Jerusalem above, the same city. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 12 reads as follows, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doth them shall live in them. That's Galatians 3.12? Galatians 3.12. Okay, I I I must have made a mistake there, but you'll find in Galatians, I've got to find the exact, maybe it's 22, uh, 21, look and see if it's 21. I might have reversed the numbers. Uh, talking about the law of God. Yeah, but it has Jerusalem, Jerusalem above. Okay. There's a, in the book of Galatians, I'll have to get that passage to you, uh, where they join an, an analogy between uh, Hagar and Sarah. Okay. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you doing? How's your, how's your wife? Everybody's fine, fine. Okay, sir. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, is it, and I have some Sapphira, you know about that in the in Acts. Are uh-huh. they, they were Christian, isn't it? Yeah, in my view. In my view, too, I believe they, they were Christian. Yeah. But some, some people argue that they were not, but I, I, in my view, I believe they were Christian. Yeah. Because they were sinned against the Holy Spirit, so yeah. God cut them short. Right. But, uh, so but don't forget the Bible says a sin unto death. And the other thing that you need to remember in Acts chapter 5 is that, you know, this was a time when the church was, was pure, it was holy. As a matter of fact, you'll read later that they said that nobody would ever join the church because there was so much holiness in the church. You wouldn't have an unsafe person coming to the church. Read that very carefully. That's when holiness prevailed in the church and the people of God were, um, the Spirit of God was working so powerfully. The presence of God was so real that the unsaved man was, would avoid the church. Now, we've turned the church into something else uh, to our detriment, but um, but I agree with you in Acts chapter 5. These are two believers who, um, you know, it's about seeking glory because you remember Barnabas had just sold some land and he's, he, you know, people was talking about Barnabas, you know, Barnabas was so generous, so generous, so generous, and they decided we want to cut in on this too. We want some, we want some praise. And the husband and wife team got together and said, you know, we want to, we want to be recognized as well. So it, it's the ego got into place, and uh, out of their pride, and but he, he judged them. Yeah, and second question. Sure. Uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter ten. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You see, in the Bible, talk about God and His presence, and yeah. telling to Peter. Yeah. Uh, how, how long do you believe he, he was praying with before God and said, "Say you believe that"? Well, I don't know how long I don't know how long he was praying, but I suspect that he's a Gentile and uh, he probably is one of the proselytes. That'd be a person who is not really a Jew, haven't followed Judaism, but a person who been following, uh, you know, listening to the Jewish faith and became convinced that the Jewish God was a real God. 
but he is concerned about how does he get in contact with his God. So he's praying. He's, he's just like a heathen in, in a different part of the world, maybe in, in, in um, Africa, South America, Alaska, uh, where the Eskimos are, and maybe watching even the heavens and the glory, they become aware that there's a, a presence. There's, a, there's something greater than, than I am. There's a great being that has made all of this. And they start praying and asking God to reveal the way and the truth and how do I how do I connect with this God. And I suspect he's praying and asking God to, to lead him in the way of truth. And that's where God intervenes and leads Peter and uses an angel. That's where and that's one of the most interesting questions that people ask all the time. What happened to the heathen who haven't heard the gospel? But this is a perfect example. Yeah. That a, the Bible says the heaven declares the glory of God. Creation mm-hmm. is hello. Yeah, go ahead. Now creation is a witness uh, to God that God is and that uh, is. Um, eternal power and Godhead, the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 1. So the creation is a witness that there's a supreme being that has made all of this. A man who comes to that basic knowledge and understanding then begins to pray to this God, even if he doesn't know this God, reveal yourself, uh, lead me to the truth. There's never been a person yet that has come to that stage and asked God for light that hasn't been given light. And that's where we can say to people, the, the problem with the heathen is that the heathen are willfully blind. Read Romans chapter 1. It is not that they don't know there's a God, but they've refused to bow their knees and give God His glory. Therefore, they are condemned just as, as a, a person living in the Western world who refuses and rejects the gospel. But uh, Cornelius is a, a person searching for God and prays to God. And when you seek Him, with all your heart, he said, "You'll find me, because God will always make a way to get the gospel to those people." So, so in other words, that he knew there was a God. He knew that he had to be saved, but there was no one to lead him to, to Christ at that C- time. C- correct. He didn't. He didn't know who this God was in his totality. He knows a Jew- Jewish God, but again, how do I get in contact with this God? And don't forget that Judaism is a it's a religion of works. You follow the law. Uh, you obey the Ten Commandments. That's not the way of salvation. Has never been the way of salvation. Salvation is always by faith. Abraham believed God and was counted in righteousness. That's found in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, so um, listening to the Jews, even though they're talking about this God, yet the way to God, they had blocked it out by imposing all these laws and all these regulations upon a Gentile. So he's searching, and uh, God shows him by getting Peter to get in contact with him using an angel. God would use whatever means to get the, the message to those people who truly are seeking God he said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. That's a promise God has given, and that promise is being fulfilled with this man called Cornelius. Amen. Thank you for calling. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. Say hi to the wife. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you very much for the call, and stay safe. And continue to encourage others to listen to CRL and to That's Truth. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 25 minutes after 8 p.m. We still have just over 30 minutes left in the program. Plenty of time for you to call in with your question. The phone line is now available again. 1-268-782-1454. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Five four, uh, Pastor. We were you were discussing you were tracing the right. New I was Jerusalem. tracing it, uh-huh. and we came to um, the Galatians passage. Um, I, I must have given the wrong verse somehow, but it has to do with passage where Paul is comparing the 
Sarah and Hagar, and uh, he points out clearly that uh, Hagar was of the earthly Jerusalem, but uh, Sarah of the the the, the, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the same concept that this this heavenly city that you talked about. When you come to Revelation three twelve, it is called the city of God. Could you read that? Yeah, Revelation chapter three and verse number twelve says. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Right. And if you turn to Revelations 21 now and read verse 2 and verse 10. Verse 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what verse? Verse 10. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Exactly. And this is the same place that our Lord said in in, um, John chapter 14, verse 2, I go and prepare a place for you. This is the heavenly city that uh, has been the hope and the expectation of the believer, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's what the New Jerusalem is. It's the heavenly city that will come down uh, according to Revelation chapter 21. Now, as far as the inhabitants is concerned, if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, there are three groups that are mentioned. Uh, that will be part of this. And what would happen when you read Revelation chapter 21, you find the same three groups. Uh, Hebrews 12, 23. Yeah, 12, 23. It says, To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. Now, the church of the firstborn, remember that Christ is the first fruit. And Christ is described as the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. The church of the firstborn means the church of Christ. So clearly, like we've got there, the believers who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Okay, read the next one. Uh, Which are written in heaven, and to to God, the judge of all, Uh and to the spirits of men made perfect, just men made perfect. Right. This, This has to do with the Old Testament saints. So you've got two groups. You've got the believer who's put their faith and trust in. Remember that we, what people don't understand is a, we must not confuse Israel with the church. Uh, you'll find from the, when you go into the book of uh, Revelation, the last city, you'll find that you've got both Israel and church again. You've got the walls, which are the Israel, uh, the, the gates, and you've got the foundation, but you've got the Israelites, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, you've got the 12 disciples. So this is the church of the firstborn are the believers, yes. A phone? Yeah, Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. If you can turn your radio down, please, and I'll fade you back up uh, in just a minute. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 829. Uh, Pastor, you finish your thought, and then I'll bring them Yeah, back. the point I'm making here is that there are three categories of beings, basically, um, that you've got the church of the firstborn, which is the believers, those, those who are in the, the, the Christian church. The spirit of just men made perfect, that is with Old Testament believers, because they look for the city, we look for the city as well. But the promises made to Israel, not the same promises made to God. And then if you look at verse 22, you see third category of people, persons. Uh, in verse 23? Uh-huh. 
Uh, the last category says, and to the spirits of just man made perfect. Verse 22. Uh, verse 22. But ye are come unto the Mount of Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Angels. So you've got angels, you've got the spirits of the those made just, and you've got the church of the firstborn. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 21. Okay, okay well, I'm turning that up. Let me... Uh, Pastor, finish your thought. And All right. Uh, to the individual calling from Antigua, if you can uh, turn your radio down, and then we will put you on the air. Uh, Pastor, you said Revelation? Yeah, Revelation 21, verse 12 to 14. Revelation chapter 21. 21 dealing with the new city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And had a great and high, and had a wall great and high, and twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Okay. And then read verse 14. Verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, the point I'm making is the same three categories. You've got the tribe of Israel. You've got the apostles of the Lamb, which is the church, and then you've got the angels. So you've got the same three categories there. So the city of Jerusalem is just the heavenly city that was promised that the Old Testament saints look for, the believers look for, to what we call heaven. That's the same uh, that we're referring to there. And you can trace it uh, right through the Bible that this is the promise and the hope of the uh, city of God that we look for, that we call heaven. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Uh, live call-in program, That's Truth, it happens every Tuesday night that's live. And then also on Saturdays, it is rebroadcast from 3.30 until 5 p.m. So if you're not regularly able to listen on Tuesday nights, maybe you have other obligations. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's church. You can tune into the rebroadcast on Saturdays. You can send your questions to us anytime during the week via WhatsApp or text one two six eight seven eight two. 1454 is the WhatsApp or text number. Pastor, a question from a listener. Where will the marriage supper of the Lamb be and when? Well, I think if you read the scriptures, uh, several times in the scriptures, there's a description of the relationship between Christ and the church. And it's always under the figure of a, a bride and a bridegroom. Um, for the audience who might be listening, you, you can check John chapter th- three, verse twenty-nine; Romans nine, Romans seven, four; Second Corinthians eleven, two; Ephesians five, twenty-five to thirty-three; Revelation nineteen seventy-eight; Revelation twenty-one, one to 20, uh, twenty-one to twenty-two, seven. All of those passages uh, have to do with the the uh, relationship of Christ being compared to. You have a question? No. Oh, okay. A relation of Christ being uh, the one of a church, uh, a bride in connection with a, a, a the bridegroom in connection with the church. At the rapture, um, Christ appears for the bride because he's the bridegroom. He takes the bride to be with him, and the relationship is consummated in what you might call the marriage there. So the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Uh, if you look at Revelation 19.7, Nathan, look for that just a minute. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 7 says, 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now you see the word there, the marriage of the Lamb is come? Yeah. And we got it in the present tense in the, in the King James Version. Anybody can go into the Greek lexicon or ch- check up uh, if you've got it interlinear, and you'll find that it's in the aorist tense. It means it's already come, already completed. The aorist tense is the past tense, which means the completed act. So by the time the, the believers are coming back now with the lamb, with, with the bride, the marriage has already taken place. So you've got your rapture, and now he's coming back at the end of the tribulation with the saints, and the marriage has already taken place. So the, the, the marriage supper of the lamb takes place between the rapture and what we call the revelation, our Lord coming back with the saints uh, at the end of the tribulation period. The other thing is, um, if you look at... Um, Revelation 19.8. Look at that for just a minute. Revelation 19.8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Yeah. Notice that uh, she already is now decked with what? The righteousness of the saints. It means that the rewards have already been dispensed. You've gone to the beam seat of Christ. Uh, you've got the marriage of the Lamb, and the, the bride is now perfectly adorned. All matters have been dealt with, and she is now clothed in righteousness. So it is very, very clear that it takes place between the rapture and when our Lord returns with his saints, as we have here in Revelation chapter 19 um, and 20. I hope that that answers your question to the individual who sent that in. Pastor, another question. Was Isaiah raptured when he saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1? Well, you know, it says that um, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up after King Uzziah had died. Um, Certainly he had some kind of a supernatural experience. Uh, uh, Most scholars believe it was a vision he had. Uh, whether that came in the form of a dream or yet you had a, a reality experience where he was transferred uh, to heaven and he saw the Lord there. That's a possibility. Remember the Apostle Paul in Corinthians chapter 12 said he was taken up to the third heaven. Uh, Paul used the expression, whether the man was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Uh, Paul used that expression. So he's not too sure whether he had a, a real uh, transfer from earth to heaven where his spirit was taken up and he saw these things. So he's using some very, very vague language. But clearly, um, Isaiah had a supernatural experience, and whether this be a vision that he saw or whether he was actually transported uh, from earth to heaven temporarily to see this vision, we're not too sure. But this is not the rapture in the sense that we use it, because when the rapture occurs, you are completely transformed, and you become like Christ. That did not happen to Isaiah. Uh, He certainly ministered after that on earth in his human form, and he was not a transformed being where he can walk through walls like Christ. So this would not be equivalent to a rapture. Uh, This is more equivalent to a vision or an experience where he was actually taken by God miraculously and and, and shown uh, what he saw in Isaiah chapter 6, but not the rapture in the sense that uh, you'll be, you know what John tells us? When we see him, we shall be like him, and we shall be transformed like him. But uh, clearly this didn't happen uh, to Isaiah, so this is not a rapture proper. Would you say then that Enoch was raptured? Enoch is a different a different classic case because uh, Enoch, uh, we see Enoch on, um, um, 
we don't know, you know, some, when I say we don't know, some people suspect that he's going to return to earth as one of the witnesses, he and Elijah, because they're the only two individuals that never saw death. Uh, some people believe that. Uh, I, I don't know how to interpret that. But I do believe that Enoch is a, a type of the rapture, of what happens to a believe is translated and taken up. I believe he's a type of the rapture. Um, whether I don't suspect at this point in time that he has totally enjoyed his glorified body because that only takes place when the Lord returns and when there's going to be a final resurrection for the Jews. But um, I think it's a type of the, the rapture as opposed to be um, the rapture itself. If you have a question, we still have time. We've got 20 minutes left in the program. You can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 To the individual who tried calling in earlier, I apologize we weren't able to put you on the air. If you call back with your radio tune turned down, we will put you on right away. Uh, if you would like to call and be put live on the air, 268-782-1454. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor, I don't know about you, but I look forward to Tuesday nights throughout the week and being able to interact with the listeners. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those who call in and those who send in questions. Um, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I will promise you that if you ask a question, and if I don't feel I can handle it immediately on the radio, I will investigate it and do a little bit more study. Uh, because there are times when you only way you can know what a passage teach, it, teach is to go into the either the Greek or the Hebrew. And let's face it, you know, there are many people, many men that God has used uh, to understand the Bible. And that's where you've got resources in terms of Bible commentary, lexicons, etc., etc. So there are tools that preachers sometimes have to use to bring clarity to how to interpret the Bible. And sometimes the, the, the King James Version, uh, the word that is used, and the, the even the grammar and the, the, the tenses are important in the Greek language, and that doesn't uh, come out in the, in the, in the, Greek, in the, uh, in the English Version. So, but I do enjoy the interaction. I do appreciate those people who take the time to call in and ask questions. And I do try to give you the best biblical answer. And I, what I tell you, I normally, I, I believe, and I'm not just trying to put the cloak over your eyes. Um, I believe the interpretation that is given. And unless I am shown otherwise, I hold to that view. And I hope you can investigate these things yourself. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe ask your pastor, get a good Bible commentary, uh, study for yourself to find out some of these answers. But I appreciate that. Pastor, in the world that we live where there are so many opinions and so much confusion in many areas of life, do you really believe the Bible has the answers? I don't have any doubt uh, about the Bible having the answers. I, I got saved about 16 or 17. I don't even remember the exact date, year, whatever it is. But it has been a transforming experience for me. And I find that I, I cannot think of any situation that I have had to run into or somebody has mentioned where there's not some biblical principle that has bearing upon that truth. Uh, sometimes it, you can be mystified because you're dealing with an advanced society and you figure that there's nothing uh, that the Bible has there, but there are Bible principles to answer every fundamental basic problem a person would have. Pastor, we have a caller on the line. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Pastor Marty. Yes, sir. In the churches, now I'm not talking about the Church of Christ, uh-huh. the local congregation in the entire Antigua, uh-huh. if, if they believe in protocol or the Word of God, well, I, I, you know, it depends on which church you're talking about because... All, uh, all the churches, 
all the churches, if they believe in protocol or the word of God, the local churches are not talking about the church of Christ. Uh-huh. Well, uh, again, I, I, it, it's such a variety in Antigua. I mean, you've got every different type of church, and church. some churches are more formal than others. Churches are more dignified than others. Uh, some churches um, have a lot of extra biblical things that are not there. I mean, the Bible is very, very simple. When you read the book of Acts of what the church was like, basically, the believers met for fellowship. They studied the apostles' doctrine. They had prayer. They had intercession. Um, there was a little bit more. There was much more freedom and liberty among the congregation that people could share uh, things with. with t- um, generally speaking, in most churches, the order is so rigid that um, people don't get to share a lot of things that they need to share. Uh, and I think that sometimes it, it's too formal. Now, you need for, you must have some kind of order. Don't misunderstand me. So there must be some kind of formality. But I think sometimes the system is so rigid that the possibility of the Holy Spirit intervening, uh, sometimes that is limited because of this rigidity. If that's what you mean... But Pastor Murphy, the Bible says we have to obey God rather than man. His word. Yeah, yeah. His word. The, the problem, protocol is not God's word. Yeah. The, what's that? I didn't hear you. Protocol is not God's word. Well, it depends. But again... People will interpret that when they say everything be done decently in order. There must be order within the church. It just can't have anybody just have assembly and everybody just say what they want to say and everybody just intervene. A pastor is, is given the authority to rule the church and guide the church. So he has to he has to help the church set some parameters of what is proper within the setting. Now, over time, that, that changes. For example, uh, our church has adopted um, what you call um, worship music. We never had that before. We would have normal songs of singing, et cetera, et cetera. We never had a, a worship session, but we find that was valuable that we have a time of uh, f- more um, freedom in, in, in singing praise to God and give people a time to testimony. Now, when I first came, um, that was not the norm. And it probably would not have been the norm because I'm coming from a background. Every pastor brings his background into a ministry, but people have had different exposures and they make suggestions and I thought it was a good suggestion and we, we tried it, we experimented with it and we find that the people accepted it well, it added a, it added a flavor to the church, it prepared the church for, for, um, for the, the preaching of the word so there had to be some adaptation and change but uh, every, every church in Antigua is coming from some kind of a, a historical background uh, and some kind of customs that are there that are, might be too rigid but we cannot Pastor just... Murphy, uh-huh. Pastor Murphy, what is going on in the world now, it is present now, mm-hmm. it would be easier for us to... Impl- easier for the authority to implement the 666. We find that, you know, we don't want to believe in the Word of God anymore. We believe in what human being said. Well, you speak for yourself, sir, because I, I know that there... Uh, because, listen, uh-huh. what happened to Daniel? Uh-huh. You tell me. Daniel, what happened to him when he was thrown into the lion's den? Well, we know the Lord protected him. Uh, but he didn't believe, he didn't believe uh, to, that he had to bow down. To, to no, we don't, we don't have to bow down. But, but, but the point I'm making here is that 
no church is perfect. Every church is trained, uh, at least I would believe that every church is trained to improve its service. How, how do we reach the people in the community? What can we do? Things change. Uh, sometimes we change the type of music we listen to, uh, the, the, the order of the service. There's always room for some kind of uh, liberty and freedom that should be there. Um, you know, you can come into church and you feel that. I've had nights where I w- intended to preach, and I just said, no, I'm not going to preach tonight. Because I, I, something happened in the service, something I just said, let the people praise God. Let them share their testimony, let them witness. So I, there was no preaching in the night because people began to share. And when I saw the sharing began to, uh, you know, it's very, very clear. This is, this is God. This is not Pastor Murphy. Give the people a chance to share what God is doing with their life. I came all prepared for sermon. This happened to me several times. So I think that uh, a pastor ought to be sensitive to the moment, how is God working? How is God? You can't be so rigid that you can't you can't bend whatever you put in place. So I think there should be some liberty there when it comes to that matter. On the other hand, you don't want to be a state where you got complete chaos, where everybody can do what they want to. There has to be some measure of control because God is a God of order in the, in respect. To and even in Corinthians, Paul set forth certain rules and guidelines governing prophesying, governing the use of gifts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <coughs> I think the church has a right as a body of Christ to to put things in place that they think will will enhance the ministry and enhance the service, but must not be so rigid that you can't change because we start at 9, we can't now start at 9.30 because, you know, there are times where you need to change and adapt, and I think that's a big problem. And then adding a lot of things that are superfluous. Uh, If I might use an example here, um, I think there's far too much entertainment in the church. Uh, I think entertainment has pretty much taken over the church to to a great extent. The Word of God is what should be uh, the center of the church. <coughs> there's room for music, there's room for singing, but the Word of God must be central and the praise of God must be central. But this idea of all this entertainment that's going on, it rubs me the wrong way and I think we're, we're heading in the wrong direction. Okay, Pastor Murphy, you know, I, I don't really understand because I, the most I'm seeing now in the churches is Antigua they believe in protocol and not the word of God. Well, what do you, you mean by protocol? How are you defining that? Well, they, they say listen to what the authority say and don't listen to the word of God. Oh, well, are you referring to like COVID protocols? Listen to what the authority says. When you say the authority, you mean the what, governmental authorities? Yes, those things that is happening in the, 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 when they tell you that um, when you go, you have to Wash your hands and all these type of thing before you even enter the church. Oh well, I I can answer that. That that to my mind, that that is. Not, I mean, I I see nothing wrong with that. You're trying to protect life. This is you're dealing with a disease. You're dealing with uh, this is not an area now that you're dealing with where the the pastor is a doctor, uh, a medicine. You're not dealing with person handled with uh, different types of diseases. The government is doing what they think is reasonable to protect people's lives. And I think the, we're also told in the Bible that we must obey the authorities. Yeah. If, the, if the authority is not violating any particular biblical principle, there's not violating a biblical principle by telling you to wash your hands. What biblical principle is being violated there? Uh, 
I don't know, but I, I, I see that I, I have to obey God, not man. Yeah, but what I'm saying, but you must obey God. In, in the case of you, you know, that passage just is obey con- God. If, it, if it's contrary to the scripture, Pastor. But how is it contrary to the scripture to tell believers, uh, tell anybody, in the interest of the welfare of people and the health of people to wash their hands, etc.? How is that violating uh, a biblical principle? Because we're supposed to give our foremost, foremost attention to the Word of God, and it never said anything like that. I can't see that in the Word of God. But it, it, the Bible doesn't say everything. It never faced a disease like this before either. So it's something completely different. And the government, I don't see the government in any way trying to, uh, to impose restrictions to stop people from worshipping. That's a different thing altogether. The government say, you can't worship. No, that's a, diff- that's a battle altogether right now. But it's something completely different. The government's job is to protect life, protect the, uh, the, the, the citizens of a country. You've got a disease that can take life away from us. For example, if you're above 65, you are in more danger than anybody else. A young person not in danger. I'm in danger. You're in danger. So what happens then if you get a young person who said, you know, it's not going to affect me that much because I'm young, I'm robust, et cetera, et cetera. But then he takes that disease into the church. And we yeah, but a young person would say that, but they're not a true believer. I belong to the church of Christ. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that if you act out of folly that you're not going to suffer your consequence. You don't tempt God. Uh, I'm, I'm not... I, I'm not tempting God, and just watching the entire scripture, our yeah. foremost attention, uh-huh. and our love for the Almighty, not for human beings. But that doesn't stop... Who, 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 they does not have no interest in the Church of God, but, the Church of Christ. Yes, but the, church, the, the, the government's first interest is the protection of the life of its citizens, including not just Christians, everybody. So they have to put things in place to protect the human life of individuals. And I don't think, why is that unreasonable? Our first job is to worship God. We worship God. But the government is not stopping us from worshiping God. The government is trying to prevent an escalating situation that could lead this country and every country to ruin. Listen, this is such a this is such a serious disease, see, that if it wasn't if, if things are not put in place, yeah. Pastor Morris Murphy. Uh-huh. When I put my two knees on the ground and I said, "Lord, protect me from danger seen and unseen." Uh-huh. The Lord they're hearing that. Yeah, but you must also use common sense. That's why he gave you common sense. I mean, I can I can go and I can walk up and down the center of the road, say, "Lord, protect me." But the law says I have to walk on the side of the road, not in the center of the road. So I can say I can pray all I want to. Right. Right. The Bible says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, we must get wisdom. And with all that getting, we must get understanding. Correct. That's and what... Understanding comes under the heading of common sense. Yeah, correct. That... And, you know... <laughs> No. Look, we must not try to push something that, in other words, you don't you don't challenge and tempt God when the, when you know. God, look, the apostle Paul went along with Luke the physician. Okay, he was Paul's companion. Uh, the apostle Paul told Timothy, "Take a little wine for your stomach." Now, why did the apostle Paul said, "I, I put my hand on Timothy and Jesus, God take away take away uh, his problem." There are times when Paul healed, but there are times when God doesn't heal. He uses normal procedures. And we need to differentiate between the two because not every, Paul had the gift of healing, but yet Paul had companions, Epaphroditus, Timothy. Uh, those are men that Paul said, I left them sick. Yet when he was on the, 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 the island, when he was shipwrecked, he was able to heal a man who had a snake had put on his hand. Uh, every situation is not the same. 
and God doesn't act in every situation. And in a case like this, uh, where we're faced with a, a pa- pandemic that can wipe out a country, a small country like this can be easily wiped out. The government is putting things in place and asking the church. And I tell you what, they'll be very, very reasonable and uh, consulted with the, with the church on these matters. And we put certain things in, in place, what you call protocol. In our church, we've got to distance ourselves. It doesn't mean that we, we don't hug each other. Uh, at this point in time, uh, we show um, some contact, but we, we, we're very, very caught because we're trying to protect well, the individual. Uh, Pastor Murphy, I use common sense. I wouldn't do that. Okay. But why Paul and Silas say we have to obey God rather than man? But you know why there? Again, don't take it out of context. They were saying to them not to preach this man, Jesus. Yes, yes and that was right. the apostle in, the, in that time, in that period. Right, but that's why he said that. When, when the church is challenged not to even to preach the gospel or to share the gospel or dispense the gospel, the church ought to take a stand on those matters. But when the government asks us to protect the life of the individual by taking certain precautions, uh, it is right and in order for any church or even a school to fall in line because it's in the interest of the welfare of the general public and the population as a whole. So I don't, I don't think there's a difference. I don't. I think you're, you're confu- com- conflating two things, where the church is told not to preach the gospel. Uh, that's a challenge. If any government were to tell me that, I would still preach the gospel, even to put me in prison. But for a matter like this, where I'm trying to safeguard the, the life of individuals. And hopefully they'll come up with some kind of a, um, a vaccine that would bring us back to normalcy. I must, I must, I must follow the protocols that the health authorities put in place. And this is part of the biblical mandate to obey the government, because they don't want to give it a rule over you unless they are asked you to do something that is contrary to Scripture. When they tell you to do something contrary to Scripture, then you can disobey them. But if it's not contrary to Scripture, you fall in line as much as you possible. Okay, Okay, God bless you, sir. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Uh, The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.55 on this Tuesday evening. Pastor, we have more questions than we're going to be able to get to, and I mentioned that so that if you sent in your question and you didn't hear it asked tonight, because we had too many questions, but we that is a great problem to have. So we will pick up next week's episode with your question if we don't cover it tonight. Uh, Pastor, a couple of... Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about the marriage supper of the Lamb? No, I just, okay. I just, I hope I'm clarified that uh, in, in the mind of the person that it takes place after the rapture because the believer is taken, those that are alive and those that are dead are taken up to be with the Lord. And we know that he comes back with the saints, but between his coming back is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So someplace in between there, in, in heaven, you've got the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And then by the time we come to the end of uh, Revelation 21, the bride is already decked in, 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 in righteousness. So is, uh, the judgment is completed, and now the the, um, the marriage supper alone is complete as well. All right, I'm going to see if we can get these questions in here. A text message from Antigua. Good evening. God is love, holy, pure, and His emotions are not like man. Question number one: How do you explain His wrath? Nahum chapter one and verse two says, "God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth." And the Lord revengeth, and is furious, and the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. I don't know why that's a problem. God is God is God is love, God is merciful, but God is also a God of judgment. He's a moral God. 
and he's also a God of anger and wrath. That's one of his attributes as well. Uh, so I don't see there's a problem there. There's no contradiction there. I, I, I got love, but I can be very angry at the same time. So there's, no, there's not a contradiction between anger and love. Uh, the problem today that we have got is that we got a, 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 a complete warped view of God that because the Bible says he's a God of love, therefore he's not a God of judgment. To them, to people, that seems to contradict. But again, the attributes of God are balanced, and God has righteous wrath, and God has righteous judgment. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no contradiction there whatsoever. And one final question. What is the Sabbath referred to in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, which will be kept in heaven? And those verses say, For the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord. So shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from the new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, Shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord? Let me uh, not try attempt to answer that question. It's such a vague passage that I can't remember the details and the context. Let me answer that question next time rather than just give a, a kind of a quick answer that doesn't satisfy the, 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 uh, the audience. And that would be perfect timing as we end up the wrap up the program tonight. We will start out the episode next week with that. Pastor Murphy, one uh, quick question in the last few seconds. Uh, someone from St. Kitts was asking, what is the rapture that you are referring to? I'm trying to understand your context. You've got 30 seconds. The rapture? Yeah. Well, there's a biblical teaching. You find that in First Thessalonians chapter 4. You also find it in Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, you can read it there. It's about Christ coming back for his church, taking his church. It's called to snatch them away. We use the word rapture, but in the Hebrew, in the Greek word, it has to, to take away, to snatch away. That's what we call mean by the rapture. And you were saying that the Isaiah was, you wouldn't use the word rapture to describe Isaiah? No, because uh, again, when we rapture, we transform and become like Christ. Isaiah didn't do that. Thank you for listening to That's Truth tonight. Have a safe and blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.